Welcome to Lines from Loganberry, a show where we, your friendly local neighborhood booksellers at Loganberry Books, talk to authors to learn what makes their books tick. This week, we're hosting interviews with cancer survivors Penny Castleman on her book How to Get a Free Boob Job, and Jacqueline Acho, author of Currency of Empathy. Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden asks how their experiences with cancer changed their lives and what being a survivor means to them. As a preface, there are many sensitive subjects covered in this episode regarding personal and physical health. Loganberry Books does not endorse or recommend any specific medical treatment and does not provide medical advice or opinion. On that note, please enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Maisha Hedden coming from Loganberry Books. I'm here with Penny Castleman. We're actually both here in the Lit Arts Room. So we're hoping to have a ton of fun here today as life starts to return back to normal. And so we have a really good program today with Penny Castleman, who's the author of How to Get a Free Boob Job, who's going to be telling her story. And then later at 1.30, we're going to talk to Jackie Acho, who is the author of The Currency of Empathy. So we'll go ahead and get started here. Penny Castleman. I remind myself every day to stay positive. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow isn't there, so relax. That's what Penny Castleman says in her cancer memoir, How to Get a Free Boob Job. Penny was diagnosed with breast cancer weeks after her 45th birthday during a completely routine mammogram. In How to Get a Free Boob Job, Written in journal entry format, Penny Castleman chronicles her experience learning of her cancer diagnosis, grappling with the genetics disorder that felled her mother, and enduring surgery. Ultimately, she finds sparkle, gratitude, and optimism. Penny Castleman, welcome to Loganberry Books. Oh, thank you so much. I am so honored to be here today. It's, it's beautiful to be in a space that's not my house, not my office. These are real books. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for having me to talk about my memoir. It is our pleasure. So can you tell us about, and let's hope I'm pronouncing it right, the BRCA2 diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. Every one of us has a BRCA2 gene. I just happen to be uh, the recipient of one that malfunctions. So what that means, uh, first of all, it is genetic. So it's nothing you can catch. It is something that is passed on from a family member. In this instance, I got it from my mother. And it just, the, the percentages that skew you towards a possibility of getting cancer are massively larger than the average population. So it's not 100% that I would get cancer, but it was certainly like fourfold or more that I was eventually going to get cancer, and I did. So in your memoir, you tell about an incident when um, your hair was falling out from chemotherapy, and someone walked up to you and said, are you a survivor? And you said, that's a lot to launch in me all at once. And so in that moment, I want to know how you responded and what does your response mean now? And by the way, so many of us, you know, we're afraid to speak up when we see something like that. So just how did you respond at that moment? Yeah, so it was a lot. To me, it was almost like we've probably all accidentally done this once and we have said, oh, when are you due? 
to someone and they're like, oh, I'm not pregnant. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, so to have somebody come up to me and say, are you a survivor? I thought, oh, I guess I might look like what a stereotypical cancer person looks like. But then I realized in that moment that they felt comfortable enough coming up to me. Um, so I felt kind of honored that they were open enough um, to ask a question because certainly I would much I would much have rather people come and talk to me about what they were seeing or what questions they had than like staring at me because I look different in that moment. On the same line, can I have you read from page 104 of How to Get a Free Boob Job, starting with, I'm grateful for the people who stopped to chat. I'm grateful for the people that stopped to chat, share a story, or wish me well. It's far better than any alternative I can think of. Those interactions also reinforce the knowledge that there are a lot of good people, positive energy, and compassion in this world. I embrace that people inherently are good. Make this week amazing. You get one life, so live it to the fullest. XO, Penny, like no other, Castleman. Thank you so much. It's actually one of my favorite passages. I love that because there are so many good people. You also talk about some other tough parts in your book about losing some friends and having some people maybe perhaps not be as supportive as you would have expected them to. Um, personally, I've always said one of the great things about tragedy and misfortune is that you get to actually see who your real friends are, um, who your real friends are. So can you tell us a bit about your chapter called our unique paths? Yeah, absolutely. It was very surreal to me that I had some friends. So in the beginning, the way I shared my diagnosis with everyone was through an email because I have friends from so many different areas of my life. And I, not only was my diagnosis a lot for me to process, but to have to get on a phone and explain it over and over and over again to people that I wanted to share it with just would have completely drained me. So initially it started as an email and I blasted it out, you know, to a whole bunch of people, got lots of responses back, some texts, some calls, some emails. And there were some people that I didn't hear from, like people who, I considered maybe not best friends, but more than acquaintances, nothing. And so I got fearful that they didn't see my email, that it may have gone to spam. And so I actually reached out personally to a couple of people that I had not heard from. And I still remember one of them, when I got her on the phone, just said, yeah, I saw it. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have much else to say at that point. Um, and so that really stung for a while because I couldn't fathom why, like I thought if one of my friends was going through this, I would reach out. But then I, I took some time with myself and just 
realize that the way we all process what happens to those around us, um, everybody's different. And I had no idea why she reacted that way. I, you know, she could have lost a sibling. She could have lost a family member. She, I will, I would never know. And so after that interaction, I just kind of like blessed and released, you know, I just said, I, I can't understand. I've done my part. I've told her what I've go I'm going through. And like that, that part of me is now it's done. I'm moving forward with those who want to support me, who are there um, to help. And, you know, if she would come back into my life, great. But at that point, I had just, you know, like I said, I blessed and released. So Penny, that was, that was the really shocking story about kind of the people who walked away and didn't say to support you during your cancer diagnosis. But in the book, you also talk about the great bonds that you made with your caregivers while you were taking chemotherapy. Can you talk about that a bit too? Yeah, absolutely. When I started down this path, I thought the last thing I want to do is be surrounded by other people who were going through the same thing. I, I just, to me, my initial thought was, oh my gosh, everybody's just going to be miserable. We're all going to be complaining and I can't have that much negativity um, in my life. But what I actually found was the complete opposite, is that everyone that I interacted with was supportive and for the most part, upbeat and wanting to make a connection because your life is so disrupted when you have cancer, your schedule's not the same. The way you interact with other people isn't the same. The way you look often is not the same, at least in my case. Um, so there was just so much change at that point. We found comfort in the connection that we had with other people. And I didn't have to explain a whole lot, right? Like you just look at each other and you're like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yep. Don't need to say anything. Um, I got gotcha. you. So, and that was, you know, not only the people who, who had cancer, you know, people who I would see in chemotherapy or people who I would interact with when I would do programs at the gathering place, but also like, the nurses and my doctors, right? It was, I would see them, so, I saw them more than I saw my friends. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was good for me to be around all them. There was a person who wasn't there though to help you through your cancer journey. And that was of course your mom. Can you talk about how just your history with your mother and what you suspect about her and BRCA2? Yeah, absolutely. So I lost my mom when I was eight years old. And while I was writing my memoir, there were a lot of, I mean, at eight years old, I, I don't have very many memories um, of my mom. And so for clarification, I had to talk to my dad about timing and when she was diagnosed. And that was back in the 70s. Um, my brother was, it was shortly after my brother was born and um, he, he was five when she died, I was eight. Um, and, you know, 
it was it was kind of surreal. They didn't know genetics uh, back then. So they gave her a clean bill of health after they uh, did a mastectomy of the breast that had cancer and just let her go about her life. Well, little did they know at that time, her cancer was just spreading everywhere. So by the time she found out she had it again, it had metastasized into her brain, her lungs, and her liver. And so at that point, you know, it was just how can we mitigate um, and make you comfortable for the last portion? And because I was always forthcoming with my doctors as I was growing up and said, you know, my mom died of cancer. They're like, did your aunts die of cancer? Did your grandma? No, everybody was still alive. And so they thought I was just an anomaly. But then when I got this news of uh, a tumor, then they did genetic testing on me. And then, so I, I call myself the canary in the coal mine because at that point, suddenly everyone else in my family perked up a little bit like, oh, your mom had it, then it's possible that my mom had it. And so it was just kind of like this snowball effect. Luckily, no one that has chosen to get tested was positive. So, um, so yeah, but it was, it was quite the uh, adventure through everything. And my mom was way braver than I would have ever thought when I hear about the types of treatments that she endured. I'm like, mine are piece of cake from what they used to do in the 70s. So um, I'm just very fortunate that I was diagnosed when I was in this time of science. And actually you tell um, a really moving story too about having to tell your grandmother that you were diagnosed with breast cancer and just even thinking about the fear that she must have felt because that's how she lost her daughter. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma there. So yeah, I didn't want to, it's so weird. I just didn't want to bother. She already buried her daughter. Like, how can I possibly sit here and tell her that I am suffering from the same thing? It was challenging, but, you know, she took it in stride. And when I finally, it was just hilarious when I finally told her because it was the first time she had seen me and it was post-chemo and I had almost no hair. And it was hilarious because she just looked at me and she goes, what'd you do that for? Like, because my hair was all gone and I just had to laugh. And at that minute, like any fear, any resistance that I had in sharing what I was going through was just like gone. I'm like, it's my grandma. Like she's been through the depression. What am I trying to, you know, keep anything from her for? And so she took it in stride and it was good for her to see me out and about with the family and interacting and eating fine and it was good. Yeah, it was good. You tell people inside the book that they have to be their own best medical advocate. So can you tell us about your experience being your own medical advocate and what you would recommend for other people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, if it doesn't feel right to you, if you're getting advice or you are being asked to do something, if it doesn't sit well with you, we have to say something, right? Doctors are not wizards. 
you know, I always embrace that medicine is much more of an art than it is a science. And especially when it comes to cancer there, I would have never thought, um, you know, cancer is used as one big word, cancer. But there are so many iterations. It is like a Jenga puzzle. Um, one person can have just one thing different from somebody else and their treatment is completely different. Um, it's mind blowing to me how massive the, the exchanges are in cancer um, treatment research, everything. So, um, so yeah, and I totally just looked up at a book and I apologize that I completely forgot what your question was. So if you don't mind telling me again. That's fine. It was about being your own medical advocate. And then, and I know that just like for me sometimes, that sometimes I don't do research because I don't really want the answer because the answer could terrify me. So when you're being your own medical um, advocate and you're doing your own research, how do you get over that hurdle of fear that, that sometimes, you know, you just want to know, you just want to put your head, head in the sand? One of the big things that I made sure that I did is I limited my time on the internet because to your point, oh, the internet is great uh, for some things and other things. You should not go down that rabbit hole. So I made sure that I fully trusted the sources if I needed to research. Um, and a lot of those sources were recommended by the hospital. They were also recommended by the gathering place. And so I made sure that if I did need or want to do research that I went to those recommended sites and not to places that were not backed 100% by science and research. So yeah, so being my best medical advocate is, I was doing what the doctors told me as long as it resonated. If it didn't resonate, I was asking questions. And as long as I was doing what they told me to do, I also made sure that I supported myself in every single way I could. So in terms of nutrition, in terms of exercise, in terms of any mental health, I definitely leaned a lot on uh, the gathering place, as well as, you know, my friends and doctors. So, so you were supporting yourself in this process. You're talking about taking care of your own mental health and taking care of your own nutrition. Tell us, like, what are you doing now? Now that you're you're free and clear, tell us about what you're doing now to take care of yourself, and also what you're doing professionally. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I finished. This was pretty much a two, my. My memoir covers two years of my life that was consumed with this diagnosis because although it started out just as breast cancer, which I don't want to say for an average person, but it was certainly made much more complex when I found out I was a BRCA2 uh, recipient of a malfunctioning gene because that quadrupled what I was having to do in terms of treatment and surgeries. So. That was in 2019 or 17, right? I was diagnosed, went through it 19. I was like, okay, let's get back to 2020. Really? So 
I was like, okay, I, I can't say that I have been able to fully get back to where I normally want to be. Like I just now um, am planning to start visiting a gym again, which, you know, all I've been doing is taking walks. I mean, that has truly been my exercise, my outlet. Um, I'm finally glad that there's sunshine out and we're having better weather in Northeast Ohio. So yeah, and in terms of like eating and everything, just being conscious of, you know, you are what you eat. And so I don't want to be a big donut or um, bagel covered in cream cheese, even though they're good on occasion, you know, I'd rather be like a strawberry and a blueberry and so healthy greens and salads and things like that. So, um, so what I'm doing now, the second part of your question, look at that, I'm finally remembering. Um, I'm a life coach and I really focus on helping women find their happy, right? If you are looking around at your life and thinking, this is not what I thought it would be, this is not where um, I want to end up, let's chat because life is full of choices and life changes in an instant. Like make no mistake, that, that's the one thing. I, it breaks my heart when people say I don't have a choice. You do have a choice because I will tell you, if you think you don't have a choice, get a cancer diagnosis and suddenly everything is put on the side, right? So be proactive, find that happy, go forward, um, cause you deserve it. Like you live once, embrace it, sparkle and rock on. Penny, go ahead and tell people where to reach you. Yeah. So you can find me at pennycastleman.com. And there I have some free resources, um, and would just love to invite you along on, uh, my forward journey. I'm on Instagram. You, I'm kind of amusing at times on there. So uh, follow along and would love to connect with any and all of you who found resonance with what I shared today. Penny, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure and I did love your book so much. It was inspirational. Thank you so much. Jackie Acho is president of the Acho Group, a strategy and leadership consulting firm. Prior to founding the Acho Group in 2005, she was a partner of McKinsey & Company. She has worked for technology, industrial, academic, nonprofit, and economic development clients on a variety of issues with particular focus on growth and innovation, strategy, leadership development for more than 25 years. Her recent work includes empathy-centered cultural transformation with the Cleveland Police. Jackie received her master's degree and PhD in organic chemistry from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and her Bachelor of Science in Chemistry with highest honors from the University of Michigan. Jackie was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in February 2020. She communicates a means to fight back against the epidemic of cancer by defending ourselves against man-made toxins and buttressing our immune system rather than destroying it. Jackie, let's set the stage for um, our audience. So first of all, can you tell us about your diagnosis? Sure. So I was functional, but struggling with my health in a variety of ways for the last few years. So especially 
2019, stressful years work-wise, I couldn't shake mysterious hives, digestive issues, and increasing food allergies. And I did everything I could to uh, try and address it. I'd learned a lot by then. We had learned a lot as a family about healing through food and supplements and living a detox lifestyle. We helped our daughter overcome hemiplegic migraines. Uh, she's great, thank God. So we had learned a lot about all that, but I just hadn't gotten to my own body in time. So. In February 2020, I had just published Currency of Empathy and returned from a book discussion on a high, really. I was so excited. And um, I remember I was cooking dinner. I went to the bathroom and I noticed just a little bit of postmenopausal bleeding. So I knew this wasn't normal, but I didn't know how bad it could get until I, um, you know, I mentioned it to my functional doctor and she took every precaution, basically thought there's nothing going on. I wasn't in pain. I didn't have any of the usual fluid buildup or the presentation of ovarian cancer. And there's, there was no history in my family of this. So we didn't suspect that's what was going on. But long story short, within a couple of weeks, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Like most people who get diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, it was later stage because it's pretty silent. You don't get to it until it's you know run a certain course. And so I was pretty quickly given a, a treatment plan. It was also a, a, a more aggressive form of cancer, which is also not atypical of ovarian cancer. So I was pretty quickly given a treatment plan. So March, and it, and it sort of feels like you don't have a lot of time to make decisions or think too hard about it. So March 2nd, I had a radical abdominal surgery. Um, called optimal debulking, which is as invasive and painful as it sounds. And then I had barely recovered from that when I entered chemotherapy um, at the end of March in the middle of lockdown in a pandemic. I walked my body into the infusion center alone because we weren't allowed to have anybody come with us at that point. And, you know, as you mentioned, I have a background in chemistry. So I was all too aware of what was about to happen and what I was doing to my body. Ironically, my lab at MIT um, did a lot of work around platinum-based cancer drugs. Which actually takes us to our next question. You have advanced degrees in organic chemistry. So what, what can you tell us about uh, the current state of cancer medicine and research and also um, the kind of research that you put into understanding yourself better? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, I was blessed to have that expertise and language going into all of this. And then also very much to have the experience that we'd had healing, our healing with our daughter. So I had a lot of tools at my disposal to guide me and give us intuition around, around how to protect my body as much as possible from the effects of chemotherapy. So, um, you know, thanks to a fabulous nutritionist, I, I suffered no neuropathy, I suffered no chemo brain, I, you know, was able to eat the whole time, um, not lose too much weight, really, I felt okay, able to exercise, do yoga, I mean, I even run very, very slow, but I run. So that, that all felt good. I have a husband who's equally analytical, and I had done quite a bit of functional testing before during and after. So I could see exactly what the chemo was doing to my body. So the state of cancer care right now, the big picture is it's based on genomics. It's based on 
you know, sort of the Human Genome Project um, showed five to 10% of people have these cancer genes that do predispose, don't necessarily mean you're going to get cancer, but unless you protect your body, predispose you to getting cancer. And, um, and I know that Penny's story includes one of those. Mine doesn't. I don't have any of those cancer genes. And that's true for 90 to 95% of people who have cancer today, right? So why are we getting cancer and how are we treating us? Well, if it's based on genomics and we don't have these cancer genes, then a lot of these drugs really don't fit our cases. And what that means is that as we go through the chemotherapy, yes, it decreases the proliferation, it decreases the load of cancer that your body's dealing with, but chemotherapy leaves you with low white blood counts, bad gut dysbiosis and digestion, which means nutrient absorption is not happening, which means that the bad bacteria grow faster than the good bacteria, which means you can create toxins um, that you reabsorb in your system, like beta-glucuronidase, for example. And in my case, I knew that I had suffered from mold toxicity. I just hadn't had a chance to clear it all. And as soon as I was done with chemo with low white blood cell counts, the mold had a party because there was you know, nothing to stop it from growing. So, um, you know, I was suffering, by the end of chemo, I was suffering big time with mold toxicity, mast cell activation, gut dysbiosis, a whole host of things that if I hadn't done the testing, figured it out, adjusted my protocol, um, I'd be in bad shape today. And abdominal cancers can be particularly difficult like this. And if the doctors don't figure out what else to do, what they do is they just keep hitting you with chemotherapy, which then pretty much destroys your immune system and your gastrointestinal system. And then your body, the machine can't heal itself anymore. So we need to get a whole lot smarter about non-toxic ways of addressing cancer, number one, non-toxic ways of preventing cancer, number two, and number three, recovering people after they've done a round of chemotherapy. Because continuing to hit somebody with chemotherapy in my experience of my own self and watching friends go through this, it just doesn't end well. You were saying that because you knew that you weren't getting well and perhaps dying, that you and your husband and you figured out adjustments to your protocols. So one of the things that I saw that really impressed me in your blog was that you said that you have to be an entrepreneur about your health. Like, you know, that your body is your business and you have to advocate it for it and find the right care. So how did you go about discussing with your doctors and, and changing your protocol? How did you become an advocate and a business person for your body? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was very blessed to have a collaborative oncologist. He didn't bring me any of these answers, but he didn't fear monger me. He didn't call me crazy. He didn't even argue with me. He, he learned. He learned. He actually wrote to me. I was writing to him along the way, like, look at this mold test. Look at this functional test. This is what's happening. This is what I'm going to do now. And he literally wrote in an email. This is Dr. Stephen Wagoner, um, who's now at the clinic. He was at UH when we started. He literally wrote back, thanks, Jackie. I'm learning. So I don't take that for granted for a second. <laughs> And, uh, and that was super helpful. Now, where I did get answers was in more functional and natural healing realms. And um, the functional tests told me a variety of things. 
as I thought, I was in full-blown mast cell activation, so I had to settle that down. And there's a way to do that through food and supplements. And Mast Cell 360 is a good website to go to if you um, feel like you may be suffering from any of those symptoms or if you want to know more about it. Same expert, um, Beth O'Hara, who's a naturopath, and Dr. Neil Nathan helped with creating a precision mold detox program for me so that I could safely get the mold out of my body without it dysregulating my immune system anymore. Um, And then I did some functional genomic analysis. And obviously, I feel blessed that we were able to invest in these things. But to be honest, these don't cost that much money. And this is what we should be doing. You know, I've done, I did all these other tests that insurance paid for to no end, but the functional genomics told me, no, I don't have cancer genes. I have three challenges, three big challenges. I cannot clear mold, check. I cannot clear heavy metals, check. I cannot clear environmental toxins and pharmaceutical metabolites, check, check. So what that means is that this modern world and cancer treatments are extraordinarily toxic for me. And I think anybody else whose profile looks anything like me. And even though I'm something of a canary in the coal mine, right? I mean, hopefully you can eat anything you want to eat and you don't react, right? And it carries on even as you get older. Um, There's so many of us now who are low FODMAP, gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, just struggling with different brain fog, different health issues, especially as we go into menopause, andropause, and get older. And it has everything to do with being able to detox this modern world. And the truth is the three challenges my body has shouldn't be in a human body anyway. (laughs) Shouldn't be in a human body. So it's, um, I don't believe, you know, things happen for a reason, but I do believe you can make meaning out of whatever happens. So one of the ways I make meaning out of this experience is digging in, understanding as much as I can with the expertise that I have, and then communicating about it so that if there are people out there who are suffering, and Maisha, there are too many. I mean, you get this diagnosis, if you're public about it, the floodgates open, and you hear from all sorts of people that you never knew had cancer, are dealing with cancer, just came down with cancer, their daughter has cancer. It's everywhere. And it's getting younger and younger. And um, we're not winning this war. So we definitely need another approach. And I feel like there's something so far anyway, to be learned in some of the approaches that we've taken. Let's just do some definitions for a second, because you're introducing people to a lot of stuff that they're probably unfamiliar with. So when you say the functional test, what do you mean by the functional test? Oh, I mean looking at your blood, but not in the standard way that Western medicine usually does, and your urine and your stool, basically your bodily fluids and uh, and your your saliva actually is how you get um, the genetics done. So the most important tests for me were looking at the level of, of mycotoxins or the toxins that mold produce in my body. And um, there's a test for that. It's just a urine test. It's called real-time mycotoxins. Great Plains also has good tests. The blood tests that I did measure about 25 different markers of the terrain of cancer. And you can look into this by looking at the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer by Dr. Nasha Winters. 
And so there are precursor markers that help you understand if there's a cancering process that is about to get out of control in your body, or if you've been through cancer and you want to fight, not have a recurrence, you can restore your terrain so that all of the mechanisms that support apoptosis, support your immune system, killing cancer cells, recognizing cancer cells, being undistracted and, and regulated and modulated in the right way so they can deal with all that. The terrain is the way to look at it. I mentioned the saliva test. Um, that's how I got the genetic, genetics done. So a lot of people are doing this now. You know, 23andMe doesn't actually do all the SNPs, but if you take a functional genomics test with a naturopath, and locally here, Dr. Laura Mourinho is fabulous at Options Naturopathic at interpreting these tests. And also Beth O'Hara helped with this too. She works virtually globally. Most people do now. Then you can get a sense of what your body's challenges are because these approaches need to be bio-individualized. That's part of what goes wrong is that we think one size fits all and it really doesn't. And then finally, I mentioned stool testing. So Genova Diagnostics does these stool tests. And again, this should be covered by insurance because this tells you whether or not you're absorbing nutrients. It tells you what the state of good versus bad microbes in your gut are. And you know, we're made up of more microbes than human cells. So it's really important to figure out that balance and to feed the good stuff and to try and eliminate the bad stuff. So all of those things help you understand your body, help you understand the dynamics, help you restore your system back to the original natural design where you are detoxing properly, even what's going on in the modern world today, which is just way too much toxins, which of course, as a chemist, I find heartbreaking because I get it. You talked about the uh, environmental triggers for cancers, these heavy metals, the pharma, the mold. I know from talking to you for the past couple of years, you also believe that there can be emotional triggers for cancer. So you wrote a book that's available here at Loganberry called um, Currency of Empathy. And I want to know, how does your cancer survival story intertwine with the currency of empathy? In so many ways. Cancer um, provided a whole new window for me to experience empathy, actually. And having expertise in empathy and, and expertise in science um, helped me look at cancer, I think, through windows, different windows than typically I had been reading about. So it intersected in a lot of ways. When I was first diagnosed, you know, it was the beginning of a pandemic. We have a very um, tight, supportive community, but there really wasn't a lot of ways that people could help. But they found really creative ways um, sending note cards. I still have one on my desk. My friend Steph Hoffner made these a whole bunch of just, you know, encouraging cards. She was on a journey that required her to be fierce. She was up to the task. I keep it on my desk to remind me. You know, people really couldn't, uh, they, they did drop off some food initially, but then of course we went into lockdown, so none of that happened anymore. Um, but I got letters, I got support on Facebook, I got texts, I got even just like a heart emoji text means I'm not forgetting about you. I know you're going through something difficult. So there was an outpouring of love that you don't necessarily get unless you're going through something so vulnerable and low. And um you know, we like to post about all the things that are going well in our lives, but the truth is we connect through these vulnerable moments. And so it became a, um, 
a very sacred experience for me, um, even spiritual. So I have a, a dear friend who um, does healing prayers every Wednesday night for the last year and a half with a team of people. She does these healing prayers and, and it just, I just feel so cared for in those moments. So there's all sorts of ways to express um, empathy for someone who's going through um, an experience like this. Um, I will say that it, it also helped me understand some of the challenges to empathy. So let's define empathy for a minute, which is to understand what someone else is feeling and have an appropriate emotional response. And that last part can be really hard because having an appropriate emotional response to someone who's going through something really painful um, can be difficult because you can be triggered by your own fear of health issues, cancer. You can be triggered by your own memories of somebody that you watched go through this experience, having gone through the experience yourself. So people have a hard time getting, their, getting themselves out of the way actually to sit with you in the more difficult moments. People love, 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 love. I do too, right? To celebrate, yay, you overcame. Yay, you're a survivor. Yay, you're done with chemo, you know, all that. But the truth is, um, the really lonely moments are the ones where you get a bad test, your marker moved up instead of down, your scan was not clear. Um, you know, these are devastating moments. And um, company gets scarce in those moments, in part because you protect yourself and conserve your energy for the people who are able to really walk with you in that journey. And I'm, I'm lucky, so lucky. I have an amazing, amazing husband who just was pitch perfect. I mean, I loved the guy before all this. I cannot picture having gone through this with, with anybody else. I, you know, he never tried to gloss over anything. He never tried to tell me things were better than they were. He never made things worse than they were. He never made it about himself. He never made it about his suffering, nothing like that. So, um, so I was fortunate that that was my foundation. When we went low, when we had to go low, we went low. There's actually, there's a great song out right now by a guy named Chet Faker. It's called Low. And, it, and one of the lines goes, just because I feel low right now doesn't mean that all that I've got has run out. So that works for me, right? So you have to feel those feelings and then pull yourself out of it. So, uh, and the healing actually requires that because if you don't go through those feelings and metabolize them and transform the trauma, it lodges in your body and also contributes to the cancering process because stress, lack of sleep, uh, the energy expended in the presence of someone who has, you know, real emotional toxicity uh, dysregulates your immune system. It's, it's a lot like mold. You know what, um, Jackie, I think you should take a minute and help a mother out. You got a very scary cancer diagnosis. I'm sure right away you knew that um, ovarian cancer is one of the most fatal forms of cancer. How'd you break that news to your kids? Yeah, that's a great question, Maisha. Um, there's, a, there's a strength, I'm not even sure where it comes from when it comes to talking to my kids. I think a lot of it actually um, stems from having the confidence of healing our daughter. 
um, from these hemiplegic migraines, which were very scary. It means you go paralyzed in half of your body. It looked like she was having a stroke. She was getting them in a cluster fashion several a week by the time we had to really buckle down, leave Western medicine and fix it. And so from the very beginning, I, it's not like 100% of the time, I'm sure I know what I'm doing. I definitely don't. But I have some faith in our entrepreneurship. I have faith in the intuition. I have faith that the people who um, I needed at different times have come forward with the answers that I needed at those times. And I had faith that all would be well in the ways that matter, no matter what. So when we first told our kids, we asked them not to Google anything. And I believe they don't, because if they did, I think they would probably clean the sink and empty the dishwasher and clean the rooms and all that much better, right? So, um, you know, we said, don't look anything up. I'm not a statistic. You know, we're going to do everything we can. We're going to figure a lot of things out. And and my, my daughter's been an inspiration inspiration. My daughter and my son both have just been an inspiration. I mean, I love them so much and want to be here for them. And, you know, whenever things would go well, my daughter would basically say, well, that's what I expected. I knew you'd figure it out, (laughs) which is great. Like that's, that's what you want them to think. That's what you want. That's what you want to think, you know? So, um, I will say, you know, there there have been moments when things went dark when I just I got quiet for a little while because I'm not gonna if I if I can't you know I'm very emotive and if I can't project what um, I think is healthy for them I won't I won't do it but it, it doesn't last that long and I've got my husband for that. Jackie, thank you so much, and I want to say um, I know I've said this to you before, but I'll say it publicly. It has been such a pleasure to know you. And, you know, you're talking about faith and you're like having confidence in your kids. I can tell you from the first time that you ever walked in Loganberry Books um, with Currency of Empathy and I spoke to you, I had 100% confidence in you. I really, really did. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Maisha, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And the work that you do in a local bookstore, projecting out into the universe is just marvelous. So thank you. Thank you for supporting these stories and sharing them. And it does a lot of good. Wonderful. Okay, Jackie, thank you so much. And everybody, National Cancer Survivor Month. Remember, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.